0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Tara Shea Nesbitt, author of Beheld.
1: When I was writing the book, I was thinking mostly about contemporary sense of immigration and immigrants and who is considered like us whoever the us is and who is not considered like us
0: we'll be back with tara shane nesbitt in just a bit first i want to say to you thank you for listening for the last seven years i've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of first draft it's a labor of love but there is also labor involved time and effort and thought whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot com firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad free and pitch free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask no please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, Reminder, Membership Matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Tara Shay Nesbitt, novelist, nonfiction writer, and assistant professor at Miami University. She is the author of The Wives of Los Alamos, which was a finalist for the Penn Bingham Prize and a New York Times editor's choice. Her writing has appeared in Granta, The Guardian, and Salon, among others. Her newest novel is called Beheld, and is set in Plymouth, Massachusetts, ten years after the Mayflower Pilgrims arrive. Rather than a town of religious freedom, Plymouth is puritanical and the leaders of the town unforgiving. Based on real-life historical figures, the Puritans Nesbitt portrays in Beheld are relentless in their beliefs and intolerant of those who are non-believers. After the first documented murder takes place, the town unravels. Beheld is told primarily from two female perspectives. One, Alice Bradford, is a Puritan married to the governor, and the other, Eleanor Billington, is the wife of an indentured servant, newly freed, and a non-believer. Both women are meditating on the goings-on in town and the friction between the different factions. Alice Bradford is additionally consumed by her best friend, Dorothy, who was the first wife to the man Alice is now married to. Dorothy died at sea on the passage from England to Plymouth under mysterious circumstances. We began the interview discussing Nesbit's relationship to book titles.
1: I think of titles in the way that I think of endings a lot of times, which is that there's always a kind of working sense of where it could go what the title could be or what the ending could do. But I don't think that I'm, I really know what will happen until I'm pretty far into a project. And for a long time, the title, at some point, the title was saints and strangers. And then there were all of these, these like titles that I was going through, but I knew that once I found the title beheld, I was also finding my footing in the novel as a real thing that could live. Um, And I was reading a lot of early American literature and I was looking at the Bible and I was just trying to be immersed in the language of the time period as well as the ideas and this sense of beholding kept coming up. And then I was thinking of what has been seen or held onto to and what hasn't been seen or held onto, um, beheld as a kind of past tense. But then, in looking at this past, thinking it seemed right to me that I that it would be a title that was trying to hold something in the space of this big narrative, like how the Mayflower passengers arrived and impacted the northeastern woodlands. To hold something to be, it's like to hold something else in that big story. Um, primarily the story of women and indentured servants and the kind of more violent aspects of what the Mayflower passengers did.
0: What first attracted you to this? I mean, Beheld is is the telling of, of real people. You use real names and some real incidences in this novel, and it takes place, it's about... Nine years post-arrival in the New World with, you know, the ship that had Puritans and non-Puritans. And you tell the story of some of these characters, you know, when they're a little bit into their lives there. So what sparked this for you? And then I'm sure you must have had to do a lot of research.
1: Yeah, I was finishing out my coursework at the University of Denver, where I uh, got a Ph.D. in creative writing and literature and i had just finished my first novel the wives of los alamos had just sold it and i and that book is exploring the making of the atomic bomb from the nuclear scientist wives perspective and i was i was realizing as i was about to publish that book that i didn't really know why i was compelled to tell that story either initially but but in looking back i started to see that what i'm what i'm interested in is how Power operates, how communities are, are working, and how these big, deci- how seemingly small decisions, like on the small scale, have really big impact. So the, the present state of nuclear waste and geopolitical power at some point being the decision of one scientist saying, I want to figure out how this sweet science can work, um, and if we can make a chain reaction. And so that was like in my mind, like, what are, what are these other stories that I could think about that are like big um, American history stories, but there is this fear these gaps are undersides. So I was finishing up my PhD at the University of Denver and was taking this class in early American literature when we were reading William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation. And it's basically his biography or community narrative of who the Mayflower passengers were and the founding of Plymouth. Um, And he was a longstanding governor, and he's telling this book, he's recollecting it later on in his life, but it is the way that we think of the Mayflower passengers as the pilgrims um, there. And he narrates it in a first person or a third person plural perspective. So they thought of themselves as the pilgrims. And I just didn't like him from, from the moment I opened the text, I felt a bit suspicious of uh, the grandness of it and how the text was being um communicated, like everything around it was, was giving it a lot of veracity, wasn't really questioning the gaps. So I had that in mind. But then when I got to the part in the story where he's talking about all of the deaths that happened that first winter and on the Mayflower and the causes of those deaths, the one death he, he talks about the cause of on the Mayflower is this um, seaman, this lascivious seaman who, so like a sailor, who comes down um, and he's kind of mocking the Puritans. And he says, like, I hope to throw at least half of you overboard before the ship is done. And so Bradford is recounting how, hap- like, seemingly in my mind, how happy he is that that seaman was actually the first one to die. God had placed a just hand upon him. But the death that he leaves out is the death of his wife on the ship. Like, that, he, he barely mentions her. He says... William Bradford and his wife, his first wife, who soon did perish or something like that. And he never goes into detail about what happened to her. So there was a footnote that suggested, like, though he mentions all these deaths, he doesn't mention the cause of death of his wife Dorothy. And someone who is telling the story like 50 or so longer years later recounts that she slipped off of the Mayflower when it was moored near what is now Provincetown Harbor but that person wasn't on the ship, so I just felt like there was this huge gap, and I was so interested in what could kind have of happened to her. Who was she? Why had why had I why had I never heard of her? Um, but I I had reenacted the Mayflower and Pilgrims um, and Indian story, you know, in K through 12 education, but I didn't know about this woman who mysteriously died on the ship. And I also suspected if he, was, if he was leaving out his own wife's cause of death, he was probably omitting a lot. And it turns out he was. Um, so from that point, I was just fascinated by her. And then I read all these primary and secondary documents to try to piece together a kind of counter narrative of both what could have happened and what I suspected existed in terms of like violence, but I didn't know for sure. And then I found so many um, things and it it was in things like I read a letter by Phineas Pratt in which he's recollecting talking to the the Mayflower passengers. Like, I think it's the next, it's in 22 or 23. And he says, um, yeah, it's in 22. And he asks the elders, like, where are where are the rest of your people? Because when you all left um, England, there were a lot of you and now there are less than half of you. What happened? And um, I have this direct quote here because I wanted to make sure to share it with you, but it says, they said, and they said that God had taken them away by death and that before their second ship came, they were so distressed with sickness that they fearing the salvages or savages should know it, had set up their sick men with their muskets upon their breasts and their backs leaning against trees." So in other words, in, in this like really odd um, languaging, Pratt is telling us that the Mayflower passengers were so terrified of what was beyond their settlement, settlement that they propped up their dying passengers against trees with muskets so that they looked like a forest sentinel. Um, and then in another instance, Miles Standish, which was their only hired soldier, um, murders a man which um pretty much unprovoked there are some accounts that say that he wasn't provoked but many accounts that say that he wasn't provoked he murders them and many other uh several of their men and boys under their pretense of trade so he like invites them and let's trade and then he kills them um maybe because which suggested that miles Standish was short like you're so short are you even a man Sandish was very short. And so he kills him and then he erects the head on a pike above the meeting house. And there's also this flag, this bloody flag waving in the wind. And so uh, I started to like see all of these details of both like huge villages and populations of people that were already living in the Northeastern woodlands, but also all of the violence that the Mayflower passengers were inflicting. Um, And then I kind of, (laughs) then there were like these two narratives uh, that were emerging from like, trying to get the tangible details of place and then thinking about these real characters who existed. And somewhere in in that research, I was reading the Plymouth court records when I found the story of the first murder trial that takes place. And when I saw that the person who was accused of murdering another person was also on the Mayflower, it just all kind of came came together. I could write the story of what what I imagined could have happened to Dorothy Bradford while um, telling the story over the span of the day that the first murder trial or the first murder of a colonist takes place. And so it was about five years of, of doing all that to make the book.
0: And when you were reading all this, which it's it's so amazing that you had had access to so many documents from the 1600s. It's that's kind of unfathomable to to think about. But as you were looking through all these, did you start hearing the voices of some characters?
1: Yeah. Dorothy came to me kind of immediately. When I was actually sitting in a classroom, literally reading a footnote in which she is mentioned about how she is not mentioned in her husband's book, and I felt like I could visibly see a bit of her, and I almost immediately started writing her story with a, with a, some trepidation because at that point, I hadn't done a great deal of research but I was trying to trust that there was something there that I was feeling called and connected to. And then I wrote the first draft of the book only from her perspective. And I was doing research, but I felt like I clearly had a sense of her voice from the beginning. But then the second time I wrote the draft, it was from alternating perspectives. And that's where I started to hear um, the indentured servants, and they're not given voice in the, in the records very much, except from the Lord of Misrule, uh, the new English canon, I think is what it's called, Thomas Morton. He writes a book in which he is saying that the indentured um, servants and the other lower classes were greatly mistreated by the Puritans. So he's the kind of counter story, but his voice, he was a lawyer and he was leading this this other community nearby that uh, the, the Plymouth Puritans were not very happy about. But you can't really you can't really hear the servants because they're only in those absences. But then I was then I was in London teaching a class a couple of years ago, and I I mean I feel kind of silly saying this, but I was hearing a lot of Cockney and I was spending some time, and not in a different language in English, but um, and various inflections and and cultural culturally different different. And that's when I started to hear Eleanor Billington. And I haven't actually told you about Alice, who is the, the other other woman in the story, but Dorothy and Alice seem to like come from the same sort of descending voices, and Eleanor um, came from like hearing cockney and, and thinking of probably where my own lineage would have come from. <laughs> um, people who were incarcerated because of a lack of because of economic precarity is what I.
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line, Yeah. So the structure of the book really, there's a few other voices besides Alice Bradford and Eleanor Billington, but they they are the primary voices. So Alice, she was best friends with Dorothy. Dorothy dies on on the crossing near the, near the end of the crossing, and Alice comes over and, and marries Dorothy's husband and becomes the second wife, and he is the governor, and so she has some sense of power, as much as a woman can have power. And then Eleanor Billington, her husband was an indentured servant who served his time and was owed a certain amount of land. You you get a certain amount of land per person in your family, and their young son died, and they didn't get the acre for him. So he he's already... Mad just from dealing with the Puritans, they call them the hypocrites, and they have a very different view of life. And so we get most of the story between these two women, which had very different views of of their society.
1: I think that Alice a couple of things are happening to her when she starts to when she tells the story. I think that from her view, as she begins to speak, She is thinking about how much that she is a part of and supporting and believes in the idea of creating a community in God's good favor and trying to make a community flourish and to have something strong and good for her family and for her children. But I also think that as she starts to tell that story, she's recollecting later in her life. And I think as she starts to tell that story, other stories start to emerge. I don't think that she set, it's weird. It's like I'm giving her agency as if she's not someone I've created, but um, she feels like that to me. So I I don't think that she sets out to tell the story of grief and longing um, for her childhood friend who she feels like she um, partially abandons because she doesn't continue on the ship's passage. And that actually is in the archives. You can see the list of people who were on the Speedwell, which was the first ship from Holland to Plymouth, England, and then who um, were not on the Mayflower. So the Speedwell leaks, and they have to combine ships. And so Alice was supposed to be on that journey, and then and then later it wasn't. And so I think that she is like has a complicated sense of her role in the community, and she is privately grieving. And she also, because she's in a position of power, feels like there's something she needs to keep to herself. And she, she's questioning how, you know, there was this sense of, are you, a cho- are you one of God's chosen? And you, you can't tell, according to their beliefs, if you are one of God's chosen. But th- there are these potential outward signs, like um, the way you're living godly in the world. Are you doing good works and things like that? And so I think that she, she thinks that she might not be, she might not be one of God's chosen. And in co- contrast, Eleanor Billington, as I imagine her, does not care. Um, she thinks that they are they are hypocrites. Um, they do not allow themselves to experience certain kinds of joy, like the joy of dancing or celebrating for Christmas, um, they have put themselves in a position of power, and Eleanor and her kind, the indentured servants, don't have um, power, and so she sees things like, okay, the elders are the ones negotiating for land, or they're the ones that can trade with the members of the Wampanoag Nation, although they would call them Indians or savages, but um, they're doing this and we're not allowed to. So we're always kept a bit below, um, below the others and we're, we're always going to have a bit of powerlessness. And she's angry about that. And she feels like the only thing that she has and that she's ever had is her mouth, her ability to speak out against. And she's bold in the sense that she knows that it will injure her. So at one scene in the book, she speaks out against a sexual attack and her punish, she's been punished for a kind of slander against the man. So she says, he did this to me. And the, the courts say, no, you're slanderizing by even accusing him. And so her punishment is to have her um, top taken off and whipped through town. And, you know, she she sees this as as complete. Completely hypocritical and not not godly at all, and so there's these I think these two contrasting views. Whereas Alice, she will not say or assert in that way because of a kind of self-preservation.
0: I think one of the things that Eleanor said that was one of my favorite lines was, "All we had for amusement was punishment, hangings, whippings, stocks." Obviously, that's the view of a non-Puritan. Can you share just more about the Puritans? You'd think, I mean, history obviously has has shared with us that they were not the nicest of people, especially to those that weren't of their ilk and of their belief. But when you think about the Puritans, like first grade level, what you learned, they came to the new world to avoid religious persecution. And they were very nasty, mean, violent people, to those who didn't believe what they believed. And I would think even to some who believed like they did, but maybe had a small deviation. Who were these people?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were extremist for their time. Uh, They weren't able to, for instance, gather and read the Bible amongst themselves in England. And um, they were very, they very much wanted to reform the church they felt like it was corrupt so then the irony of course is then once they receive any kind of power they um reenact certain violences that they were originally speaking out against but so they were in when they were in england they were they were they felt themselves to be persecuted against and they thought you know um alms is a wrong thing like we shouldn't people shouldn't be able to pay the church like make a uh, do something really bad, and then confess and say, can I give you some money? And will you give me alms and tell me that like, I won't be persecuted against or like I'm not going to go to hell? So they thought these kinds of things were wrong. And so I think in the outset, it, make, it sounds kind of right. Like, yeah, the church does sound corrupt. And yeah, you should be able to um, interpret the Bible and have this closeness to God's word, however you like in your home. And, but they were seen in London or they were seen in England as the extremists and that they were taking the Mary out of England and they wanted things like no portraits of um, God's likeness up anywhere because we didn't actually know what God looks like. And that somewhat makes sense. And then someone is like someone really, uh, really extreme. Like who cares? Let them do what they want. Um, So they go, they go to Holland and they kind of sneak away to Holland and there they actually have religious Uh, freedom. They can practice, they have a church, um, they have a pastor that they love and admire, but they were immigrants and they weren't able to rise up and have more economic stability. William Bradford he got a bit of an inheritance and in that inheritance, he invested that inheritance in a couple of businesses and they all failed. So, when I started to look at, wait a minute, there's this whole economic rationale for why they wanted to leave Holland to speak my interest. And he was a weaver, a Faustian, which is kind of like quarter- corduroy, and he wanted to like skip the middleman and not have to pay taxes. And Holland was like, no, you have to pay his taxes. So, all of this is going on. Meanwhile, they have this this strong congregation in, in, um, Leiden, in Hol- Amsterdam and then Leiden. And then they, um, they decide that they, they want to retain their Englishness, Englishness and they're worried that their kids were becoming too Dutch. They were quote, intermarrying and um, they didn't like that. And they were a little bit afraid of um, a truce being nearly over between the Dutch and the Spanish. And so there, that was happening in the background too but they there was nothing in any of that that had to do as far as i know with religious persecution but if they wanted to go back to a sense of englishness they couldn't go back to england because of the way that they were seen in england and so so they tried to find a colony that in which like you know they would they would be, colonies basically being cash cows for for England. And so they are like, okay, we'll find this, we'll found this colony. And in doing so, we'll go to like near the Virginia colony, which is already in existence. And then we'll have our own separate enclave and we'll be able to do the religious practices and beliefs that we believe in. And it will be just us. And we don't have to deal with all these Dutch and we don't have to deal with all these Anglicans. And so it was a kind of I think a belief in a kind of utopian community. We can make this This community in God's good favor, but very quickly things start falling through. They can't get they can't get financial backers. Once they find financial backers, the financial backers kind of say, "Well, we need to include some indentured servants, um, some adventurers, some people who can also pay pay for the passage and help you out in the foundation of the community." And so they, all of these other people start to come in. And so they're no longer. By the time they leave England, they're no longer a group of Separatist Puritans that are all believing in a community in God's good favor, that practice the same. Um, and it just deteriorates from there, basically. But then they then they get to the northeastern woodlands and they settle atop Patekset, which was a grave site. Um, the many many members of the Lompoc Nation had been um, decimated because of illness that the English and and French and others and Spanish had brought over. So they just sort of, you know, they steal some corn. They're like, great, we got a bunch of seeds here and we're going to build on top. And what what struck me is that they didn't bring their pastor with them. So for a narrative of religious, um, seeking um, freedom from religious persecution, um, to not have brought your pastor and their pastor said, you know, I'm far too needed here in Holland to go. And when that first um, murder that a a colonist does, when Miles Standish murders Wichwama and others, William Bradford writes back to Pastor Robinson and he's like, he, want, he wants a little praise. He wants like in the father, fatherly way for Pastor Robinson to be proud of him. Look what we've done. Look how we're, um, we've got things in order here. And um, look how we've killed these men. And Pastor Robinson um, is very cautious and says where there is bloodshed, there will be more. And he also says, watch out for Miles Standish. He doesn't say it in quite that language, but watch out for Miles Standish because he's kind of a hothead and I'm a little concerned for you all. And Pastor Robinson never comes and they never have a consistent minister. So um, who were the Puritans is like, it's complicated but it's also very much not what, we've, not what we've heard about who they were, particularly that narrative of religious freedom. And then on the more like humorous side, things like they thought of sex as one of God's earthly blessings. And so they weren't extremely like anti, anti-body, anti-sex. They had a lot of children. So they liked the bodily, I think still, they drank, they did all, all these other kinds of things. But, um, but religion, <laughs> religion, I think played a far different role in the story of the Mayflower crossing
0: over than um, a lot of us thought, including myself. I think it's interesting too, the, the intersection of, of ego and religion we were talking earlier about power. You know, you think about power and how that plays into these stories, just, you know, the power that men had to to dictate and tell these stories and record these stories and, and run their societies, but also the ego involved beyond God. They, they almost, in, in another way, the other side to that.
1: Bradford had a really compelling story. Uh, so every Puritan would have... Their kind of origin story of how they um, became devout, and it was a story of fall and redemption. And and but Bradford has this story of his his whole family had died, his parents, his siblings, and he's living with his uncles. And they go to church on Sunday because that's required by law, but they don't go because they have any real connection to it. And he becomes ill and. He gets to read, he like stays in instead of farming. He's not helping out in the fields. He's reading the Bible. He's enjoying himself a bit. And he has this kind of vision that he needs to um, go elsewhere. And he, and I think that like the details of how he finds the church, I either don't remember or they're complicated, but um, he finds a pastor who is saying, yes, the church is corrupt. We need to do this and that. Um, and connect to the Bible in this way. Uh, anyway, he, but in that whole process, he he narrates it to us that he had um, a sense that he was meant for basically bigger and better things. And so in one way, yeah, I guess you could think about it like... Um, a drive towards greatness, um, which was not a very humble perspective, was a part of his kind of foundational narrative. And then I see him when he's like having all of these failed businesses, and when he's like, let's take everybody, we're kind of doing perfectly fine here, but let's take everybody and get out of Holland and go to this colony. And, and I just imagine his first wife who had left behind their only son, who was around three or four. They had no other children, but they had been married, I think for about seven years. So that was pretty um, not, not typical for, for families. And so all of these women around her were having tons of children, were taking their children. And I could just imagine her um, kind of seeing what this might be like and starting to question her, her husband's motives, if not before they left, um, certainly once once they start to arrive. I mean, it takes them several years to even get on the ship because of um, all of the series of failures of getting financial backing and where they were going to go and all of this. But he definitely seems like a, a striver. Yeah. Um, and he he certainly narrates in a way that that takes on such grandness. I mean, to write in the third person plural, to say they called themselves, as if I were writing like you and I, we, you know, not even we, but a they, um, both a grand separation and um, it's just a grandness in, in general. But I don't know. Anytime I say anything like that, and I'm kind of like asserting, like, yes, he was totally egotistical and power hungry and thinks that he'll do it better than other people. And as soon as he gets power, he um, he doesn't do it do it well. Anytime I say that, I'm also like, and it's also more complicated in ways that I can't hold in my mind at the same time, or that I just don't have access to or know. But certainly, um, I, I wish that there were letters from women or diaries from women, and they're just not, there's nothing. And I, I think women are so strong and resilient, and historically, that they, they had to have great feelings about what was going on and question it sometimes.
0: I thought it was interesting the the financial part that in some ways they were they were almost like a a product I mean they were sent over there, yes, they had investors, but they were investing in in them i mean they had to produce they they had that pressure, which was an interesting way to look at them as a as a society,
1: yeah, they did, and they um there's a lot to say about that because they didn't have to sign up for debt, but they did. So they were offered um, to. They were the, the Dutch offered to take them on a free passage to new Amps, new Amsterdam. So like near the Hudson River, and they declined because they said no. Then we would still be. Among, Bradford says we would still be amongst the Dutch, and then of course we would still owe, we would owe them something. Um, so he he declined the free passage in exchange for a significant amount of debt. Um, but to retain whatever it is he appreciated about Englishness. And um, it, I, it struck me, it struck me too, that there were, there were financial liaisons. There was Thomas Weston who signed up a bunch of kids. The youngest was four um, to be indentured servants to the Puritans. And I don't know how much the Puritans knew that they were getting on this ship and they were going to be caretakers for a bunch of kids whose parent, whose mother did not even know where they were or why they were there. Um, and I think that that, and that that sense of debt also fuels things like the elders would make these pamphlets to send back to England, advertising how abundant the uh, soil was and the fish and all of the, the, the wood, you could like send back wood and um, there are whales maybe, and um, really, um, falsely advertising, uh, because in fact, they were on somewhat infertile, infertile, rocky soil, you needed to know how to fertilize it well, and wasn't as great as what they were advertising, but they were advertising to get more people to come to the colony, which would help them produce more, to sell more, to pay off their debt faster. It's a different narrative, if we say we're a country that's founded on debt, xenophobia, a want for economic gain, and a sense that the way that we are as a community is is the right way, and we don't want to let anyone else in. And of course, I'm saying this "we" with the caveat that um, this is only one small narrative of the whole country, but but this one that we are all asked to perform and reenact in elementary schools, which is a great time to have to have us reenact it because then we forget to question it. We're a little too young to question it. And it isn't until much later that I think, uh, I mean, I think a lot of us suspect at a young age that there's something off about those narratives, but um, I'm just struck by how much has consistently
0: been left out of those stories. You said earlier that when you start writing, you don't really know what will happen and how do you square that with a story where you kind of know what happened because it's history.
1: I do really like that when I'm working with um, a story of the past, there's a certain kind of post or um, seeming like a scaffold, like some structures, which are just time. So, you know, like, okay, 1620, this happens. 1630, this happens. um, 1640, that happens. But as I'm writing, there's like two different, at least two different, ways that I don't know what's happening and one is that uh, when I'm when I'm doing research and I and I do research as I'm writing I don't know what I don't know and there's a lot that I that I won't find that I, that I find as I'm researching that's so fascinating and interesting that I couldn't have made it up so I know that may they, when the Mayflower passengers arrive <laughs> and I know that Dorothy's death isn't really mentioned but I didn't know until um a few months in writing about like the forest sentinel or the head on the stake or those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm learning, like, I'm learning about the, about the characters, both as I test against primary documents and then secondary documents, like reading what contemporary um, what scholars are saying or new information they're finding out or what archeologists are considering. Um, so I, so it's like all that kind of research. And then it's, it is trying to follow, like trusting at some point that I know enough to follow something that's um, informed by that, but has to exist also separate from it in terms of imagination. I think different projects require um, different kinds of research. And like for the first book, there was a lot of oral histories that I could listen to. And in some ways that novel really is nonfiction because it's based so much on what I heard and saw and could find. But in this book, there are so much that is not in existence. Like there's the signature of Dorothy Bradford on her marriage certificate. There's like a felted beaver hat. There are these heeled slippers that one husband had um, and and some letters. But the way that I square it is like, um, I write and I give myself permission and I think I'll check back later to test it against what I can find. And then, um, but then I also know that there's so much that there, that will never be verifiable. And then I think about it, like I'm having a conversation with the past rather than um, veracity. So I'm not saying this is what it was like, but I'm saying this is what I can imagine about how it would feel. The E.L. O has a quote about that. Like historians tell you what happened, writers, fiction writers tell you what it felt like. Even that doesn't feel true to me. Like, um, I'm going to tell you what it feels like to imagine what happened in 2020. Like, in the, a woman in this contemporary time with these contexts is considering what it could have felt like for these two women living, you know, that time ago. So I think I'm telling you just as much about the present day. Not Maybe not just as much, but there's subtext about the present day in the story that I'm telling about this great past. And then I kind of forgive myself for, for my sins of... Anach- anachronistic wording and things like that. You know, I, I'm, I was researching this book right until I had to turn in the final edits. And in fact, the advanced review copies are about 15% different than the final version because right until the end, I was finding new information and questioning and um, felt like I needed to get some things, even, even more things in or, or make things um, a little more complicated or, or do all of those things, so... So I guess in another way, I never quite give up. I I never quite end that um, that tension is always there for me, and I'm I'm just I'm just going with it until someone
0: rips it from my hand. I wonder if you've thought at all about how some of what you wrote about could be true today in this pandemic, and what I mean by that, and and what I see right now, and and we're sitting here. It's the very beginning of May. We still have no idea what's gonna unfold. But slowly as as some states are starting to open up, I see this clash happening. I see it locally and nationally between people who are like, hey, you just got too close to me, or you shouldn't open this, or you have to open everything. And it's a very divided. It's a very binary. And it's very ideological. And it's kind of like both sides are, I mean, it's a lot like our politics, too. But there's something sort of contained about the beliefs around this COVID. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's subverted in some ways from what I would have imagined, you know, like in a different community and a different kind of totalitarianism, there would be the, um, you, the people have to do this. So you have to, depends on what story you want to tell, but like, we don't have enough masks. We don't have enough non-cloth masks. We don't have any, enough N95s, but you have to do this anyway to put yourself at risk. But and now there's this way that it's been subverted such that a, a large amount of people that have experienced economic precarity are saying, I mean, they're not saying this, but they're saying, put us at risk by, by not saying it. They're saying, you know, we, we, need, we need to work. And we're very angry about that. It's hard for me to talk about it, like of the time that, that we're existing in. And I think that's partly why I like to go back to history because there's some things that have a bit stopped or they're tamped down. And so I can connect it, but I don't, but I know, like, what as I'm living it, it's like um, so many nodes, so many different points coming at me at the same time to try to to try to examine it and think about it. But the one thing that I'm um, consistently infuriated about is the the sense of um, double speak. And you can, I, I saw that with the Puritans as well. The way that the way that it's not even double speak. It's like the way that the Bradford would say is the one that really perpetuates the idea of we were seeking um, freedom from religious persecution. And then you look at the archives and you're like, um, I think you were seeking a little more economic gain and you were kind of xenophobic about the Dutch. And those aren't, they're not quite opposites, but they're um, very different assertions about about what was happening. And, and sadly, I think that that's happening now too. I mean, I, I wish that there was a third thing to kind of counter so you don't have these two of silos of thinking about things. When I was writing the book, I was thinking mostly about contemporary sense of immigration and immigrants and who is considered like us, whoever the us is and who is not considered like us. And there's a way that I think the book can seem like it's identifying those factions, but I felt like writing it was my attempt at hopefulness like I will write into it to try to understand if there are ways that we can we can bridge. And I think it's on an individual level. Like if you understand that de- like big human decisions are made because a single person has their own buying interest and they make an interest, they make a decision based on their own self-interest. I think that's what I've come down to thinking about it. And then at every level, how can I make a decision that is not fully in my own self-interest, but is thinking about the larger communal interest? And that's, that's my hope.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes. Um, I'm going to read a poem by Craig Rain called A Martian Sends a Postcard Home. Caxtons are mechanical birds with many wings, and some are treasured for their markings. They cause the eyes to melt or the body to shriek without pain. I have never seen one fly, but sometimes they perch on the hand. Mist is when the sky is tired of flight and rests its soft machine on ground. Then the world is dim and bookish like engravings under tissue paper. Rain is when the earth is television. It has the property of making colors darker. Model T is a room with a lock inside. A key is turned to free the world for movement. So quick there is a film to watch for anything missed. But time is tied to the wrist or kept in a box ticking with impatience. and homes a haunted apparatus sleeps that snores when you pick it up. If the ghost cries, they carry it to their lips and soothe it to sleep with sounds. And yet they wake it up deliberately by tickling with a finger. Only the young are allowed to suffer openly. Adults go to a punishment room with water but nothing to eat. They lock the door and suffer the noises alone. No one is exempt, and everyone's pain has a different smell. At night when all the colors die, they hide in pairs and read about themselves in color with their eyelids shut.
0: Tell me why you chose
1: that. This was one of the first poems that it spoke to a sense of. I read it when I was young, and I started as a poet. And it was one of the first poems that tried to um, propel from a higher up from a different perspective by looking down on people to see the ways that they might not be able to see themselves. And I've been forever drawn by thinking about what we're, what we're, what we're seeing and experiencing and how we can try to see and experience that from, from the vantage point of someone looking in on us. How can we get away from our own perspective to see it a bit differently?
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yes. Alice Bradford. It's September again. The sun shines through dying leaves. My second husband dead 12 years. My her- first husband dead 35. At the end of life, everything comes back to you as if happening today. What does it mean? Why did it happen? The revelation never comes. Instead, there is my granddaughter the sound of her feet running down the hallway and small daily illuminations. And I'll stop there. Um, that is near the end of the book. And I had this line, it's September again, the sun shines through dying leaves and really early iterations. It, I I often write in fragments and then I try to, try to find where they fit. And I didn't know how it was going to fit. I actually thought it would be the opening of the book, and, um, so it was tricky for me to find the voice that was going to come from, and then as I was in the final draft of the novel, I came to see that this was being narrated from Alice at the end of her life, and so these, that's the final chapter of, um, the book, and it's the, one of the, one of the last things she has to say, so it took the it took the longest to the home for that, and I felt pretty happy by where where it landed. Where do you write? Everywhere and nowhere. Um, my kitchen table, um, frantically, and notebooks by bathroom light after the kids are asleep. I used to go to coffee shops, but not anymore. Um, and I don't have a home desk or a, a home office. So I have a notes file on my phone and it's like when I'm doing dishes or giving the kids a bath or if I'm running, I'll kind of slow run to take down notes. Um, but usually the ideas come when I'm in motion and then I try to find a bit of quiet time within, within uh, piecemeal places.
0: <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I am usually very much combined with home space and writing space and I think it's because I don't often feel like I have a solitary enough um life right now to want to leave the writing it's usually the opposite but if I had had the if I do have the chance to have a longer writing day then I'll take a run or call a friend or um take a bath but mostly it's picking up kids from preschool and living with them in their worlds, which is, uh, which is lovely in many ways. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two friends that I went to graduate school with, Anton D. Sclafani, who writes historical novels, and Shana McAuliffe, who's a novelist, as well as an essayist. And they were both prose writers who dared me when I was a poet to write a story and they've, they've been good friends and they're very different readers and writers. So they, they, they help me see all kinds of gaps. They're great.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I heard recently um, the Ohio medical director, Dr. Amy Acton say about how she was dealing with the pandemic. I think because of the childhood I had that I'm at my best during a crisis. And that's what resonated with me. Um, because for my own, when, if most rejection doesn't settle in, but if it is an extreme one, you know, a big one, like a missed job opportunity or, um, something that I've wanted for a really long time, this isn't necessarily healthy, but it's an, it increases my vigilance or a kind of obsession. Um, so I'm, I, I feel up my energy rather than sometimes really sitting with it. What is your favorite word? Today I'm going to say hush to disclose. Um, It's a kind of comfort. It can be a command, a bit of a whisper. And I like the, um, I like a lot of words with this H's.
0: Good writer. Good Tereshae Nesbitt. Thank you so much (laughs) for your time.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been so lovely to talk with you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Tara Shea Nesbitt, author of Beheld. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Miriam Taves, whose novel Women Talking focuses on a group of women who have been severely harmed in their secluded Mennonite community. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Michelle Bowdler, Ursula Hagee, and RL Mazes. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.